Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, I interview Afshin Ishmael Way, who is the CEO of the Phoenix Coaching Company and the podcast host of the Leadership Podcast. And Afshin has been working with multinational corporations, becoming an HR leader over the last 20 years. And today we veer from her normal topic of discussion, and she shares what it has been like for her living and working around the world, both personally and professionally, as a woman of color. And one of the things that she's most passionate about is diversity, equity, belonging, and inclusion. This is something that comes up in her work and also a big part of what we discuss today. She has such an interesting story. She was born in Pakistan. She was spent many of her formative years in Saudi Arabia and has worked in so many different places and is now in Switzerland with her husband and her little boy. Afshin wishes to be a role model for women of color. And one of the things that she talks about and the messages that she shares is for women of color to never give up, to go after their dreams. And when you see mountains and obstacles, to just look at those as little speed bumps that need to be overcome. She has a really interesting story and a powerful message, and I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hello, and how are you today, Afshin? I'm so happy to see you today on the Connected Community Podcast. I'm awesome and enjoying the last vestiges of summer and and really getting all as much sun in as I possibly can in Switzerland. Uh, and yeah, I'm super excited to be here. So thanks for having me, Nikki. Thank you. I know that you have your own company. You're the CEO of your own company and you have your own podcast and you've got your hands in so many different things. Um, and so we're veering from your usual topic and we're going to dive into the topic of what it's like for you to be a woman of color living and working in many other countries and what that's been like for you professionally and personally. I'll be more than happy to have that conversation because it's been <laughs> such an adventure being me. <laughs> I don't mind. And I think also there's, uh, I think part of it is also driven by the fact that um, there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of role models in this space. And so I take it really personally, like a, a personal thing that I have that I want to be out there and speaking as much as I possibly can to um, what's possible, what are some of the chances that you can take, or, you know, if you're not taking them, go ahead and take them um, so that we can have more, more role models in this space. And this doesn't, this is easier for the next generation or whoever wants to come after me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've lived in eight countries across three continents. And so let's start with like where your journey began, your career and your journey and how you got to live and move around to all of these different countries and how that experience changed from country to country, because I imagine it changed a lot. So I'm originally from Pakistan, as as you know, Nikki, and um, 
when I was six, my parents um, decided to move to Saudi Arabia at the time. That was, you know, the Middle East was sort of up and coming. And in order to earn a tax-free income, people would leave their families behind and their, you know, their social infrastructures behind for that, for that uh, better future future for their kids, Mm -hmm. as is a a typical tale, you know, it's a tale as old as time. Uh, I come from Pakistan and I know people have a sense for the fact that it's a third world country and maybe women don't have as many privileges as men do. However, the environment that I was growing up in within sort of my infrastructure, my immediate family, my mother is a black belt in karate. She's worked all her life. My father is extremely supportive of uh and <laughs> and just a regular Joe, you know. And so for us to to move from rel- the relative freedom, let's say, to an environment where things were quite restricted, I didn't notice a big difference. I was six years old, so that was basically all I knew grew- growing up. However, as I look back on it now, I realize um, that that. I think that's where my knowing of the world sort of came is when you go from one place to another in Rome, you need to do as the Romans do. And you need to find your best fit within the context of whatever is available to you and and see how you can make that work. Because it wasn't as though we could just up sticks and leave and say, okay, forget it. You know, we have to wear a headscarf outside. So I'm just going to leave. I mean, Uh, our families were earning incomes that meant that we'd have a better future and gave us a chance to go to private schools and things like that. And then one of the big things that was really formative for me was that that actually gave me the opportunity to, despite being in a fairly restricted environment, we were still going to school uh, in a very international setting. So we had kids just like ourselves who were coming from all over the world. And this was a massive melting pot where no culture, no one culture was right or no Mm -hmm. one social norm was right. Mm -hmm. That acceptance of sort of everybody thinks differently and and that's cool within and overlaid by this sort of external environment, which was quite restrictive, was quite fascinating to me. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a term that's called mental flexibility. And in that, it's the it's the it's the acceptance and understanding and ability to sort of hold the space for two completely opposing ideas, knowing that they can both be true. And mm-hmm. I think that's what I kind of developed as I was growing up was this mental flexibility that both of those realities can actually be true. And how am I going to show up in that space in order to live my best life or do my best work? Mm-hmm. So that was that was all the way until high school where I, you know, sort of finished my adventure there. And in fact, my parents were still based in Saudi until three to four years ago. So technically, um, you know, they left around the time that women were just getting their permission to permission to drive. So a lot has changed in those, you know, 30 odd years, but at a really snail's pace. Right. 
And what I did after high school was, you know, I went off uh, back, back to my home country in Pakistan to find my my fit there. You would think it would be a natural fit because I'm Pakistani and I went home to Pakistan and I kind of speak the language. And of course, as it turned out, it wasn't a fit. Because you know what I was talking about earlier when you grow up in a in a melting pot and no norm is is right. So everything is quite acceptable. When you go back as a Pakistani or as any person to your own country, you need to fit into a certain um, mold. And I didn't. There's probably that expectation that you must fit into that mold again. And, and, and I didn't because I didn't know how I had become used to defining my own what's right, wrong based on this mental flexibility that I had gathered on my way. And so I, I, I found myself at the age of 19 sort of in massive rebellion and frustration mode. Why must I be a certain way? Why is this the way it has to be? Uh, why am I being judged? And, and there were simple things like the fact that I spoke at that time uh, English with a very American accent. And that felt like I was alienating or trying to be something I wasn't. But that was actually just the way I spoke. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to find a complete sense of belonging, despite being in my own country. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just curious, what were some of the other things, though, that, that weren't fits for you that made you feel like a little bit of an outsider within your own country? You know, that's an interesting question. When I moved back to Pakistan, I was dressing in Western outfits and I had my own car and I was living very independently and uh, and uh, w- which would be, you know, no, no big surprise if you knew the kind of family I came from. But it was very different from everybody else that I was going to college with. Mm-hmm. And so I was too Westernized. I was speaking wrong, dressing wrong. Uh, and living maybe wrong as well. And 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 part of it, I think, didn't become quite self-imposed as well because I began to realize that the spotlight was on me and I wasn't mentally prepared for that. Um, and so that took me a lot of learning um, mm-hmm. to to understand and, ex- and and come to terms with the fact that be this as it may, I can still honor myself and I'm just going to have to accept the fact that I may not fit everybody's mold. And I think mm. that phase of my life actually taught me that the most was when in question, trust yourself mm-hmm. because you're a good person and, 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 you know, ask yourself all the right questions. Is this right? Is it fair? Is it honest? Is it in line with my values? And then it might upset some people, but you're going to have to stick to your, to your inner, you know, your inner compass. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important moment and also really difficult to reach that realization. And so when I went away from Pakistan to pursue my master's, I was suddenly in the U S and I had Mm -hmm. so many people asking me, well, you grew up in Saudi and then you lived in Pakistan. You don't know anything about the Western world. How do you feel about this? Like, do you feel suddenly free? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, this is an interesting question to ask because that was not necessarily also how I felt, right? Um, I had appreciation mm-hmm. for um, what was different 
and I had appreciation for the possibilities for women and 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 a different level of respect or at least less judgment um, than I would have faced in other parts of the world was I still living there. But at the same time, I missed some things, like genuinely missed some things from from the other cultures that I'd had exposure to. And it, it kept going back to the melting point pot of growing up in Saudi Arabia, being surrounded by all of these international students from all over the world and really missing that because the world suddenly felt quite homogenous and then mm-hmm. there was me. <laughs> Right. And so that was that was also a great learning experience or, you know, in my last year in the U.S. and I was there for three years, I was working and um, September 11th happened. And it's not a time I'll ever forget. And I was working at the Hyatt Regency in in Texas, which was at the time in Dallas, the tallest building in the city. And I went into work and it hadn't registered in my mind uh, what I had seen on TV on the news that morning because I was just looking at it on, on, um, on mute. And so it hadn't registered until I was driving that what I was watching on TV was actually something that had happened and hadn't happened in a movie. And so here I am now suddenly driving slower and slower to the tallest building in Dallas, right? Thinking, I wonder if I should even be going to work this morning. Anyway, it was the hardest day of work that I'd ever experienced in my young life. I mean, I was 23, 24 years old at the time. All the flights had been grounded and there were people that were returning from the airport to the hotel and they were in tears and on their phones, you know, reassuring their wives, their husbands, their children, that they were safe, that they were okay, trying to find their wives, children, husband to see if they were okay. And there we were standing, you know, at, at the front lines, checking people in and all of this. And I don't think I will ever forget the level of kindness of some people extended to me in asking me, are you feeling safe? Because they knew that there would be people making connections between the way I looked and the way those guys looked, right? Mm -hmm. And it was humbling to me to know that within that context, they could still stop themselves and say, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And I think that that again, left a real huge impression on me that humanity is just humanity, right? And that when all the chips are down, you can still show up and just be a decent person and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter, you know, people don't have to judge you just because of who you are and how you look. Mm -hmm. So, I found in that moment a community of people who embraced me and I was able to embrace them back and we were able to commiserate about how confused we all were Mm -hmm. in what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And so I left the U.S. soon after that because there were really no places for me to work at the time. Mm -hmm. And I moved back to Pakistan and I was very fortunate to find a role with one of the big four KPMG 
in, in, in sort of an HR role. But here I was again, right, back home, a little bit different or maybe a lot different than all the people around me. Being older and being wiser and also having a, a an interesting career where I could apply myself mentally was really empowering to me. So being back in Pakistan this time felt less um, as though I was vulnerable because I was able to stand on my own two feet. And, and this is, I think, what's really important about you know, young women who are coming from backgrounds like mine, once they've really found their footing in that career space, then I really think they are past some of the major um, hurdles that they're going to need to face because they are able to then establish their own identity and also be financially independent. And that's mm -hmm. a really, that has been a really huge enabler in my progress throughout my career and throughout my life. So I was kind of lucky. I had, like I said, my parents were super supportive of my, of my career ambitions mm -hmm. uh, and, and literally, you know, made it, made it their business to, 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 to sort of be my biggest cheerleaders in that space. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that really that, and I think that's the kind of support a lot of women in, in my country don't get, not enough women get it. I met with somebody in my most recent visit to Pakistan and she was from Switzerland and she said that she had met a group of students at one of the bigger universities in Pakistan and how she was interested in empowering the female students. And she was told by an older gentleman, thanks to all the older gentlemen, don't waste time here because they're never going to be able to break through the barriers that they face wow. uh, from their fathers and the men in their lives. And, and so I had to sit her down and say, let me as a woman speak to the voice of other women from our country and help you find the ones and, and sort of take away the wool from your eyes. Don't let other men tell you what we can do. Mm -hmm. well, I just want to ask a question. I mean, you you got an MBA from Baylor, is that correct, in the U.S.? I did, yeah. So what what is that like in Pakistan, having a master's from the U.S.? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's probably not super common with women. So it's a good question to ask, and I think it goes back to the kind of family you come from. So mm -hmm. in my family, and, and it is very rare, um, equally, the men and the women were educated at the same standard, depending on whether they wanted to be. And, and so I say that I stand on the shoulders of giants, mm -hmm. men who were secure enough and, and actually empowered enough to empower um, the women and women who were empowered enough to take on the baton and say, that's it. I'm going to go and be a doctor. You know, I'm going to go and be a PhD and teach at the University of, of, you know, the University of Karachi or whatever. So there were plenty of role models in my family, but that was because there were men and women who were ready to stand up for what they believed was the basic right. As long as you want, you can go as far as you want. And of course, there were women and men who didn't choose to take up that baton, but there was never anything to stop us. The only difference between myself and everybody else who came before me was that I was, I believe I was the first woman in my family to go and study that far abroad. 
mm-hmm. rather than that far locally. Mm-hmm. So in that, I was a pioneer. And in that, I had a journey that I had to go on as well, because the expectations were, you will come back. You And mm-hmm. I had to come up against, no, I'm actually of the view that I want my path to be different. I don't choose to come back. And that was the resistance that I had to overcome. For example, going abroad and then moving from one country to the next. So from Pakistan, I moved to Sri Lanka. Then I that was followed by moving to Dubai and working uh, in Dubai for seven years, which was then followed by moving to Austria, which was not at all exciting for, for some members in my family because it was like, okay, maybe if you go to Sri Lanka, which is kind of close, or maybe if you go to <laughs> you know Dubai because we all like to visit. But when I said I'm now for my career going to actually move to Austria, that was a huge uh, no-no. But it wasn't only because I was moving to Austria, but also because I was 35 and single. And when I moved to Austria, I met my husband and that didn't help. My husband is not um, Pakistani. He's Swiss. So and and Mm -hmm. that was quite complicated. So here I was now not mm-hmm. just having abandoned <laughs> sort of the social structures that I should be confined to, um, not just single and all of the other things, but also choosing to marry a man who was not of my culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a lot, a lot of grace, determination, uh, but also I remember having a conversation with my husband once before we got married, in me processing how to help others understand in my family, what about this was right for us? And what about this was right? Because there were so many things that were said that were wrong about this. But we understood from the beginning that what we shared was a fundamental set of values mm-hmm. and that our shared values of honesty, of respect, of diversity and inclusiveness, of curiosity for what's different and new and adventure. Mm-hmm. That has always stood us. And it's now been 11 years since we've been mm-hmm. together. We have a seven-year-old son. And this is what we bring to him now. You know, this is, we believe our biggest gift to him is everything of ourselves that, that he's able to actually assimilate all of this beautiful diversity into mm-hmm. his being a global citizen in the future. And and I think our children, as the world becomes smaller and more diverse and, and more connected with each other, and I think our children have this unique opportunity to make a real difference in the world and to make it even smaller if we are ready to open ourselves up to mm-hmm. um, to taking some really big steps, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, that sort of, that take courage and, and, and quite a lot of determination. And so when you were in Saudi Arabia and you were growing up in those formative years, were, were you completely covered your whole body? That's a really good question. So, and I know everybody asks, so yes, um, in public, 
it was mm-hmm. it is required it was required it's not anymore but it was mm-hmm. required at the time that if you are going to step out of your home and you're going to go to the mall or even for a walk down the street that you had to be appropriately covered from shoulder to toe mm-hmm. and so we would wear uh, this robe a black robe however and and this is an interesting one because most people don't realize we didn't need to cover our heads unless we chose to. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, local schools have regulations where young women who are arriving in school need to wear a headscarf uh, when they're arriving and when they're leaving. So then mm-hmm. we would actually be fully covered for those five minutes in a day arriving to school and five minutes in a day leaving to school, leaving school. But we were always covered from shoulder to toe from the ages of 12 onwards um, whenever we were outdoors. Yes. I'm curious because I lived with a Muslim family in Thailand for a while. I was traveling abroad and uh, the lady I was living with didn't speak any English and they lived across from a mosque. And I went to a Muslim wedding and they dressed me up and covered me up. And so basically it was just my eyes showing. Um, And I have that experience and I know what that was like for me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious what that experience was like for you when you were covered up and walking around. Sometimes it's a little bit dangerous if you cover your face like that, because you can really walk into a car mm-hmm. if there's a busy street. <laughs> so it's also from just from a technical perspective, mm-hmm. you know, you really, you really must be of the face if, you know, if, and, and I t- full respect to, to the women who choose to do that. I think what's most important to me is that it has to be a choice. And I think it makes me super angry when it's not of choice. And I genuinely, genuinely appreciate um, that it gives you a sense of a boundary between yourself and the big bad world out there. So if that's what Mm -hmm. makes you feel secure, then go for it. You know, Uh, personally, I feel secure without a headscarf and I feel Mm -hmm. secure without a robe. And I think this is a very important part of my values and my beliefs. Choice is super important. I need to mm-hmm. be in choice. And as long as if if somebody insists that I do something, it rubs up against me in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. If it is a choice that I do something, then nobody should be allowed to take that away from me. When mm-hmm. I was growing up, I didn't know the difference between choice and not choice. So it was fine for me then. Right. I didn't question it at that time. Mm -hmm. And your own interpretation of how the world should be. And you have to find your own version of that and reconcile with it. And if it if it is increasingly incredibly bothersome to you that in a certain country, the interpretation is being imposed upon you, then leave that country, you know, live somewhere where you and your choices are respected. And I think that's super important. I would not accept to live in certain conditions. And mm-hmm. I do think that you had a little bit of the luxury of growing up in a family that was a little bit more open-minded. Um, so I'm curious what your advice would be for women that are in these positions that don't have the ability to flee, that don't have those rights, that don't have the um, financial ability to just flee. And so they are stuck in these situations that might not feel comfortable for them. 
You are so right. And I and I, I, the distinction is so incredibly important. So I feel a little bit like it's not my place to to give advice to those who are um, mm-hmm. facing bigger challenges than I faced. Um, but I do believe this. I believe that we all have in our own power, whether big or small, ways to assert our own minds. And whether that is by thought, whether that is by words, or whether that is by actions, we should, we have the right to Mm -hmm. take those, um, to take those steps. I know that you work a lot with um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so how do you bring those principles into your workplace and into your value system? Well, part of it is just the lived experience, right? Um, uh, I feel as though I can relate to a lot of the the, the the guardrails that are put up around people that are different, that are not white and men, for example. And in that relatability, there's, there's a group of people in the world that whose challenges feel familiar to mine, whether their challenges are different, there are parallels that we can draw. I work a lot with diverse leaders and, um, you know, women of color, um, uh, people who have a different uh, different gender orientation. So I tend to work a lot with people who are who are diverse. And I also end up working a lot with people who uh, are wanting to be allies of diverse people. Or and and a lot of the times, what comes into my work is I'm going to try to find a really good way to say this. I find that when I'm talking to the topic of resilience. I'm coming from a place of so much resistance that I don't actually know how to stop until I get what I want. Yeah. And I find that that is what people like me is is now a superpower to us. We, we know to never give up Mm. and roadblocks are speed bumps, you know? And so I often work with leaders who may come across some roadblocks and I help them see them. I help them make speed bumps out of them. How do you get these people to speak up and advocate for themselves without creating um, like rifts? I think you're asking some really big questions. (laughs) So I think part of what I do is not getting people to do things, right? Mm -hmm. It's about helping us tap into our own internal resources and determination and resilience and working from that place and saying, what's your most empowered response? Mm-hmm. coming from that place. And when we are able to, instead of tell people what to do, because then 
there is no ownership involved. If mm -hmm. we are able to tap into surprising resources that are within all of us and champion those and walk shoulder to shoulder with the people who are being courageous by tapping into those resources and then living their truth, mm -hmm. then they can create sustainable change. And that small change or big change, whether it's in your thoughts, whether it's in your words, whether it's in your actions, it moves mountains. Mm -hmm. There are generations of men and women who fought the fight for me to be able to be here. And some of them made very big steps and some of them made baby steps, but mm -hmm. all of them made a difference. And that's why I can do what I do. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, some, it, it's allowing people to tap into their strengths, looking at obstacles as opportunities, finding what works for them and kind of empowering them to use those skills? Simply put, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very basic, yeah. Yes, and, and I think the big piece is allyship is so, 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 so important. Mm -hmm. You know, the knowing that you are not alone. Mm -hmm. The knowing that there's someone else who believes in you, who sees your potential, who... Mm -hmm. There are so many naysayers. It's such a breath of fresh air when somebody says, I stand by you while you make these courageous choices mm -hmm. and you live your truth. And, and I think the call is not just to those of us who are being courageous and, and roaring our roars, but also to those who are watching us from the sidelines to get off the fence and walk shoulder to shoulder mm -hmm. with us. I love that. Standing Thank into you. our power and being becoming role models for the next generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, how would people reach you and tell people um, a little bit about your podcast and your, your career path and how can they connect with you if they'd like? Thanks for the opportunity to share that. Um, so I host the Getting Real podcast, which is a bite-sized leadership podcast, um, and it basically features women in leadership roles because I'm so passionate about that, about normalizing the faces of women and the voices of women in leadership and making that making these role models more visible to others so that they can see themselves in those roles for the future. Well, and you work with multinational companies. You don't work with individuals, right? You work with major corporations. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, I do work with leaders one-on-one -on -one within mm -hmm. the corporate context. So global organizations like Diageo, like um, Takeda. Uh, so mainly in the pharma, FMCG and beverages sectors. And I also, so I work with leaders from these organizations and also with leadership teams in these organizations to amplify their business impact um, through their own sort of um, building their own leadership capability or their ability to work together more effectively as a team. Mm -hmm. 
I love your story. I love, I love your background and all the places that you've lived and worked. And, um, I really am impressed by your family and their ability to look outside the box and to support you. And I think that it's so important to support those that are different than us, those that walk different paths, those that have big dreams. Um, and I love how you're empowering people to stand into their power. So I, I really think you have an important message and I'm so grateful for your time here today. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much for, for giving me the opportunity to speak my truth. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkiyyoga.com, N-I-C-K-Y-Y-Y-O-G-A.com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.